As you may be aware, we had started a Christmas series, and this doesn't quite immediately fit into the originally planned Christmas series. This is our final sermon in the book of Revelation, which was supposed to have happened a number of weeks back when it was also the weekend that Miller unexpectedly went into hospital, and so it got held off. But what we're about to see, it actually does fit reasonably well with the Christmas theme anyway. So let's open up in prayer as we trust God to work through his word in us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that the very faith that we profess is not just a set of beliefs that just might have happened, but are grounded in real historical facts that people saw with their own eyes. Lord, we thank you that you did send your son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be the saviour with good news of great joy for all people. And Lord, as we ponder his first and second coming and the wonderful blessing that is, may you encourage our hearts, may you strengthen us to live for you, and may you uh, propel us to share the wonderful good news with those around us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen feels a bit weird to think that it's actually less than two weeks to Christmas, although Blake's that still gives you plenty of time to get your, your shopping done. But when people think about Christmas, for some people it's exciting. It's a really joyous thing. Some people it's, it's a sad thing, particularly if they've lost family members in the year just been. But even some people who love the idea, it gets too stressful for some. And sometimes there's various factors that contribute to that result. Some of the things are things you can't control. Some of them are well and truly within your control. But for some people, even though they like it in concept, find it to be the most stressful time of the year. And it's not like we get sprung on you, is it? It's not to say a couple of days beforehand someone says, by the way, December 25th, we're doing Christmas this year. It's been the same day every year for many, for quite some time. I won't say right from the beginning of the church because it wasn't. But even those who love the idea of family coming together, who love the idea of food festivities, even some of those people still find it really unpleasant and really stressful. And that usually comes down to whether or not they're prepared. Like if it becomes so stressful thinking, oh, all these people, family are coming to our house, the room's not ready, the house doesn't look clean enough. I'm spending all of my Christmas doing cooking, doing all of these things. It takes away. But if they're prepared and they like it, they get to enjoy and they do enjoy all of the goodness. In our passage this morning, there is one phrase that gets repeated three times. It comes from Jesus that says, I am coming soon. And it kind of is the theme that all of the passage orients around, to think about Jesus is coming. And I think it challenges us to think in three different ways. Firstly, it challenges us to think about being prepared for his coming. What happens when he comes and how Do we feel about his coming? 
It kind of fits well with the Christmas theme. Now at Christmas we have this angelic announcement that there's good news for all people that a saviour is born. In Revelation 22 we have good news of great joys that he is coming again. So firstly, being prepared for his coming. Now it's fair to say that because the Bible is the word of God, every single part of it is trustworthy and true. But you'll still notice there are various times throughout the Bible that it makes a special point of saying this is a faithful and true statement. And Revelation chapter 22 is one of those occasions. It's not because this is more truth, truthful and trustworthy than other parts, but it's more of a way of saying, this is important, I want you to take this in. What I'm saying here is 100% true, and it's important, not just to Christians, it's important for everybody, because it has implications for every single person ever born. So I want you to listen up. So I speak about what is about to happen soon or quickly to take place. Because from the perspective of Revelation, even though John's writing the first century, the book of Revelation has described the nature of the world in which we live in between Jesus' first coming and second coming. Things that describe the nature of the world in which we live in, the forces at work behind the scenes. But it's similar language that we saw in the very first verse of the book that says that this book was written to show his servants the things which must soon take place. Because it describes everything in that, in that time between his first and second coming. It describes the things that, that even began to happen in the lifetime of the original recipients and that will continue until Jesus returns. But to say these things are soon... Or to say that Jesus, to say that he is coming soon to us, seems a couple of thousand years have passed since then. Yet the same time period that it's been describing throughout this book is spoken of in long-term language in Revelation 20 of a thousand years. Yet from God's perspective, who according to Second Peter, a day is like a thousand years, he can say, I am coming soon. It is the next step to happening God's big plan of redemption. And it's worth noting the very first thing that Jesus says after this announcement, this is a faithful and true thing. I need you to listen, take this on, is I am coming soon. This is definite. Jesus Christ is coming. And it's not just a 100% definite thing for Christians to take note of. It's a 100% definite thing for the entirety of all of creation and it affects the entirety of all creation. Think about when Jesus came the first time. The angel made the announcement to Joseph, you shall call him Jesus because he shall save people from their sins. That's exactly what he came to do. When you read through the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, we see that we deserve to die. The God who created us and has given us all of these wonderful blessings deserves our honour and thanks. Yet we turn our back upon him saying, thanks for all the stuff, but I don't want you. What an offence that was. We deserve death. And when Jesus came into this world, he didn't come to give us what we deserved. 
He's a gracious and merciful God who came to give us what we didn't deserve. While we were happy saying, I can do it all by myself, I don't need you, you can stay out of my life. He came into the world to lay down his life to save those who were in active, hostile rebellion against him, like you and I were. But when you think about Jesus on the cross and you see the cruelty of the way in which he died, you get just a small glimpse of how offensive our sin is to God, how repulsive it is. But as we turn from our sin to the wonderful Saviour in Jesus Christ, that debt is cancelled. He has paid our debt penalty on, death penalty on our behalf. We have peace with God. We are counted right in his sight. Our sin, past, present, future, no longer held against us. And as a Christian, for Jesus to say, I am coming soon, that is a blessing. Because we know it is only going to be good. And John connects those two ideas. As Jesus says, I am coming soon, he says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That's been the theme throughout the beginning. At the very start of the book it says, blessed is the one who reads this book. Blessed is the one who hears it. Blessed is the one who puts it into practice. Because it not only describes in the first chapter, verse 5, how Jesus Christ saves us from his sin, from our sin as he shed his blood on the cross on our behalf. Just Jesus rose from the dead, defeated sin, defeated death, defeated Defeated Satan has given all power, all authority. But the time in which John is writing, the recipients are starting to think, is it worth following Jesus? They're being persecuted, they're suffering for being Christians. They're being limited in opportunity to make a living. If they don't bow down to the emperor, they basically don't get a license to trade. They look around at the people around them and their lives seem to be going great. Yet as Christians, they're finding it difficult. And they're asking, is it worth following him? Can we really believe that Jesus Christ is reigning when all this mess is around us? But this letter that John writes to these seven churches, it shows them he is in control. God in his grace shows us behind the curtains of what's really going on in this world in which we live in. He shows us the wonderful blessings of patient endurance. Shows us that in the end he wins, that he does bring about his perfect justice, that all of these seemingly victorious enemies of Jesus will be brought to nothing. What a blessing that would have been to hear as his people in the middle of those times, that his children will inherit this new heavens, new earth, and they will be with the almighty God forever. For John, who's writing this letter, who has been boiled in a vat of oil, who's exiled in the island of Patmos, what a blessing for him to be able to see these insights, to see the conclusion of God's plan of redemption. In fact, he's so overwhelmed, he bows down and worships the angelic messenger who rightly rebukes John. What are you doing this for? 
What are you worshipping me? I'm just an angel. I'm just like you guys. Worship God alone. Not even an angel is someone we bow down and worship. Think about Acts chapter 14. People tried to worship Paul and Barnabas. And they said, don't. We are just people. Repent of your works. Honour God and, and God alone. He's the only one who's worthy of all of our worship. Yet isn't it fitting that when Thomas bows down, worships Jesus as my Lord and my God, Jesus doesn't correct him because that is a true statement. So doesn't it seem odd that someone who's not just an everyday Christian, that an apostle John would make the mistake of worshipping an angel? Which, effectively, that's idolatry. And then to be so humble to include it in the letter. Man, if I did that, I wouldn't put that in. I don't want people knowing for all time that I did that. But it's a reminder to us that even apostles, they're human beings like you and I. They get it wrong. And then if an apostle can make the mistake of getting more caught up with the messenger than the one the message points to, guess what? You and I are susceptible to that as well. Think about that for a moment. If people, when they think of you and your Christian faith, think more of who your favourite authors are or your favourite preachers are, more than who your love for Jesus, then that's a problem. If they hear more about people who bring you the message that points you to Jesus than they hear about Jesus, that's a problem. A faithful author or a faithful preacher should do nothing more than point you to Jesus. They don't want you to remember them. They don't want you to remember even your personality or the particular way you presented things. They want you to see and be impressed with Jesus. Now, it makes sense for the angels to say, don't seal up this prophecy. Like in Daniel's time, he was told to seal it up because now's not the time. But now he's told, don't seal it up. The time is now. We're in these last days, a time awaiting the return of Christ. That doesn't seem strange. Doesn't verse 11 sound a bit odd for an angel to say? Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. The righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. I don't think anyone's got a problem with the second half of that. The righteous still be righteous, the holy still be holy. But for an angel to say, let the evil still do evil. Let the filthy still do filthy. Does that sound like something an angel would say? Does God want people to do things like this? Something I've often struggled with is when you hear Christians who expect people who have no interest in God to live according to the Bible. Why would they? If they decided I hate God, by what means would they desire to live the way he wants them to live? Look at the way the Bible describes those who haven't trusted Jesus. It describes them as being hostile. It describes them as living as enemies who cannot please God. So why would we be surprised that they live as hostile 
and enemies towards God. Think about the way Paul describes those who turn against God in Romans chapter 1. What does God do with sinners after they'd turned away and done all sorts of repulsive things? It says God gave them over. God's let them continue to do what they're doing and that in itself was a judgment. Now it's not to say don't share the gospel, don't pray for people to be saved. We should, we, that is our mission. But if they won't turn to Christ, part of their judgment in this life is to experience and to continue in their sinful actions which will be dealt in their entirety when Jesus returns. So what happens? Well, I said we've got three announcements of I am coming soon, and here comes the second. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Each one, every single one. He is coming. Every single person ever born will give an account before Jesus for what they have done. We need to be prepared. John has graciously told us a couple of thousand years ago, he is coming. We need to be prepared. We must give an account. He is worthy of all of our honour, worship and praise. And we need to give an account. The first time Jesus says, I'm coming soon, there was a promise of blessing for those who obeyed the word of the prophecy. Now here again he's saying I'm coming soon and saying there is blessing for those who have washed their robes. The thought of Jesus returning is a blessing for those who have washed their robes. Those who belong to Christ back in chapter 7 were described as those who have washed their robes in the blood of Christ. That is the only means by which we can stand before God with confidence. We are not clothed in our good works. We're not clothed in our achievements. It is a blessing if we have entered into a relationship with Jesus, if we have turned from our sin, trusted in Jesus, that his death was our death on that cross. We have been washed. We stand before him, washed in the robes of the blood of Christ, who will enter into the city gates, into the tree of life, But when he returns, there will be a final and eternal division. There will be those who go to everlasting life, experience God and all of his gracious goodness forevermore. But even in Jesus' own words, those who are wicked will go on to eternal punishment, who will go on to bear the punishment for their own sin. Now some might read on to verse 15 and think, Phew, I'm not on the list. Clearly I don't need to trust in Jesus. This is outside of the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, immoral, the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. They're like, never done sorcery, I'm not immoral, never murdered, never been an idolater, all is sweet. But note that bit I've underlined at the end. And everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Let me remind you of one truth. Jesus Christ is Lord, whether you believe it or not. Jesus Christ is the Saviour, whether you believe it or not. 
To love or to live as though Jesus Christ is not Lord is to love and to practice falsehood. To the many who boldly proclaim, Jesus is a fairy tale, I don't need him. A living and loving falsehood are outside when Jesus Christ returns. Think about the way Romans describes our sin. Ultimately, it comes down and says it's a failure to honour God as God and to give him thanks because he gives us our life and breath and everything. All of the wrong things that we do are just a symptom of us not wanting to honour God. But one thing that bothers me when you see a verse like verse 15 is sometimes you come across Christians who seem to almost delight in the fate of others who haven't trusted Jesus. As though somehow, this is what you're going to get, you deserve it. Brothers and sisters, we deserve that. God himself says, I do not delight in the death of the wicked. Neither should you. You should never find delight in seeing someone get what they deserve for their sin because you haven't got what you deserve for a sin if you're trusting in Jesus. We should grieve for them. We should be praying before God. We should want them to experience the same grace and mercy that we have received. Wouldn't it be wonderful as a church family if we saw just five people next year come to trust Jesus for the first time in their life? Like even if we just had 40 of us praying for three people in our circles, we know that's 120 people being brought before God in prayer on a daily basis. Because we've only given one life. The Bible says now is the day for salvation. Hebrews says it's important for a man to die once and then to face judgment. If you haven't yet trusted Jesus, can I plead with you? This is the one life you have. When he says this is faithful and true, he is coming, he means it. He doesn't mean it to, to scare you. He means it's like the, I have provided the way of escape. Take hold of this. You don't have to suffer the consequences for your own sin. I've done that for you. He said he's coming three times. And the challenge is to think, how do I feel about that? Am I indifferent? Does it make me scared? Does it bring joy? Well, probably much like the Christmas example, that might come down to whether or not you feel prepared. You'll notice that both the Spirit and the Bride, which is the church, say, come. The longing of the Spirit of God is that Jesus would come. The Spirit who indwells his people, the church, should long that he would come, that he would bring in perfect justice, that we would get to live with him for all eternity. That should be our deepest longing of our heart, for Jesus' return to make all things right. But do you notice the description of the Christians? The description we saw a few weeks back? Those who are thirsty. Our desire for Jesus, our desire for God should be more than our food and our water. God, we need you to stir in us that we have that sort of desire for you. And just like the two times beforehand, in combination 
with the Lord Jesus is coming, there is both blessing and curse. There is blessing. To those who thirst will be blessed to drink freely from the water of life. Everything they've longed for, everything they're hopeful will be theirs. But it also turns, it says, cursed are those who would add or take away from this book. What do you mean, add or take away from this book? So often you hear this verse used saying, the Bible's finished, this is the last book. If you add any other books to the Bible, then that's what then you're cursed according to this. But most people who say that don't know there's actually four verses that essentially say the same thing in the Old Testament. The first one being in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 3. And I've never heard anyone say Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 onwards shouldn't exist. What I think it is saying is that this book describes God's plan of redemption. From start to finish. This book provides the pathway. It shows how we get into right relationship with God. How he's bringing that plan of redemption to its full fulfillment. Don't think for a second you are going to change anything about the plan of God. Don't think for a second you can alter it and justify your sins as though somehow that'll be okay. Even those letters in the first, to the churches in the first, second and third chapters... They condemn such people who bring such teaching. But we're reminded in this chapter we all need to give an account. But if we are prepared, there is blessing in knowing that he's coming soon. And in light of that, it's a very fitting last verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. What's my only hope for now and for all eternity? Is it that I've been a minister? No. Is it that I've done things that have been helpful in this world? No. My only hope is in the grace of Jesus Christ. His death on my behalf. Your only hope in this life is the grace of Jesus Christ. He would cleanse you by his blood and present you before him pure and spotless. That's our only hope. So as we think about Christmas and we think about Jesus coming into the world, he came into the world for one set reason, to seek and save the lost, to lay down his life as a ransom for many. That was the preparation. He boldly announces three times, I am coming. He says, I need you to know this and I want you to be prepared, to turn from your sin, to trust in my provision that that day would be joy and privilege and blessing. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's so easy to become familiar and even complacent with the grace that you have shown us in Christ. On every single day I look upon my life and I say, other than the grace of Jesus Christ, that day would not be good enough. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who desires to be made known and that you desire freely to be made known despite whatever way we've expressed our hate, hostility towards you. 
Thank you that your offer of salvation is available to anyone. There is no sin that can outsin the grace of Jesus. Lord, we pray that not only around Christmas as people hear the good news of great joys that a Saviour has come, but that he is coming again. We pray that people would be stirred by your spirit to have a longing in their heart and they would know their need and your abundant provision in Christ. That the, the greatest gift they could ever know was they can say, I have Christ. Thank you for what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.